difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we have two films about kids and their bonds with powerful creatures. One creature is real and one is imaginary, but both films focus on what their relationship means to both kid and animal. But the similarities between our two choices go even deeper. Tasha, now that I've won your trust by luring you into the studio with food, can you tell us a little bit about these movies? Yeah, you're not giving me enough credit for having saved your life by stomping on that snake. This week, we all saw Pete's Dragon, David Lowry's new remake of the 1977 Disney film of the same name, albeit one that only resembles its source in the broadest possible strokes. Pete's Dragon stars Oakes Fegley as the eponymous Pete, a kid left alone in the forest when his parents experience a car accident in a remote wooded area. He's adopted by a dragon he names Elliot, and years later, both boy and dragon have to adapt when he's discovered by a kindly forest ranger played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who grew up hearing tales of dragons from her father, played by Robert Redford. We entertain a few possible companion films to Pete's Dragon, but when we happen upon an IndieWire interview with Lowry in which he mentioned Carol Ballard's 1979 film The Black Stallion as a source of inspiration, we didn't have to entertain anymore. If The Black Stallion was made today, Lowry told writer Bill Desowitz, it would be an art house movie. But when I was growing up, that was family entertainment. I do wish those lines weren't so clearly drawn. I wish there was a little more art in the mainstream and a little more mainstream in the art sometimes. So we decided to put The Black Stallion, a mainstream hit in 1979, next to Pete's Dragon, a film very much attempting to summon the same artful spirit. Both are visual feasts, both are anchored by remarkable performances from child actors, and both emphasize visuals over language to convey why we love animals and how deep that love can go. So, without further ado, let's board a doomed ship somewhere in the Mediterranean that's loaded with some cargo that doesn't want to be there. The Black Stallion. The story of a legendary horse who could only be tamed by a young boy's love. Together, they survive a shipwreck. And the dangers of an island wilderness. You saved my life. They meet a forgotten man. He'll be moving, he'll be making that rhythm. You just go on with him, see. Who helps them bring a legend to life. The Black Stallion. An unforgettable adventure, a motion picture of extraordinary beauty, a story that will make your heart race, your spirit soar, but most of all, it will make you believe in the Black Stallion. It's usually a mistake to read too much of a director's biography into his or her career, but it's almost always a mistake to read none of that biography into it. 
Take Carol Ballard, who followed an unlikely but weirdly logical path to directing The Black Stallion and the films he made after it, films like Never Cry Wolf and Fly Away Home, each of which returned to the theme of humanity's relationship with nature in general and animals in particular. Ballard was born in Los Angeles in 1937, but described his childhood to critic Scott Foundas as being spent in a frontier, pretty much a wilderness area, experiencing the world in a very direct way. He first became interested in film while serving in the Army, a stint that exposed him to movies by Akira Kurosawa, Sajid Ray, and Tenosuke Kinugasa's Gate of Hell. This interest took him to film school at UCLA, where he studied beside and befriended Francis Ford Coppola. But success didn't come as quickly for Ballard as it did for his classmate. Rather than pursuing big studio features, Ballard created short educational films like Pigs, a wordless exploration of the lives of pigs on a farm, and The Perils of Priscilla, the adventures of a runaway cat, which he made for the Pasadena Humane Society. Ballard had a busy, if not necessarily high-profile or prosperous filmmaking career, one that included some desert work on a little film called Star Wars. When Coppola called on him to direct an adaptation of Walter Farley's 1941 children's novel, The Black Stallion, the story of a boy who shipwrecked alongside a horse and later rides that horse to win a championship. Even if Ballard seemed like an odd pick at the time, it now looks like the film he'd trained his whole life to make. In his years making movies with animals, Ballard had learned the value of patience. At the heart of the film is a long, dialogue-free sequence in which Alec, a boy traveling with his father in the 1940s, is shipwrecked in a terrifying accident at sea and awakens on a desert island with the ship's only other survivor, a magnificent, seemingly untamable black stallion. Alec, played by Kelly Reno, slowly wins over the horse he dubs simply the Black, a process that culminates in a series of beautiful scenes of boy and horse living side by side, all boundaries between humanity and nature having seemingly been erased. Let's consider for a moment the virtually miraculous alignment that had to take place for one of the film's most famous moments, an unbroken take in which Alec finally wins over Black's trust as the sun sets. Ballard had to coax amazing performances out of both a kid and a horse, while working with cinematographer Caleb Deschanel to keep both in frame. And he had to do it all at magic hour, lest he lose the moment's visual richness. When Ballard finally does cut, it's to a closer shot that gives in an already emotionally raw moment the ideal punctuation. Yet each time I watch The Black Stallion, I don't think about any of this. I can imagine that there are piles upon piles of alternate takes of this and many of the film's other scenes, but it plays as unforced. It's a perfect moment, but it doesn't seem like the work of a controlling perfectionist. It plays like the work of someone who spent a life watching animals and knowing that attempting to force nature to do your will is a fool's game. The best you can do is bend its direction a bit, and even then it's best to be prepared should it want to bend the other way. It's a case of the director's style lining up with the theme of the film. Working from a script by Melissa Matheson, Gene Rosenberg, and William D. Whitliff, Ballard keeps circling back to the foolishness of trying to turn an animal against its nature. The horse traders who beat and confine the black in the film's opening moments have no shot at taming him, but Alex's kindness can. Pinned in Alex's backyard upon their return, the Black rebels. When Alec channels his spirit toward racing, with the help of a down-on-his-luck trainer played by Mickey Rooney, he becomes an unlikely champion. And at this point, Ballard cuts not to a scene of roaring crowds, their faces shocked at what's happened, but flashes back to Alec astride the Black on that beach. Not only is there no getting to that moment of victory without the hours of patience and kindness that preceded it, the two are one and the same. So guys, The Black Stallion. We were all very excited about picking this film, enthused about pairing it with Pete's Dragon. Having watched it again, what what did you all think? Well, I hadn't seen it before. I was the only one okay. who hadn't right, seen it. Let's start it. with you then, Genevieve. What did you think of the film, The Black Stallion? Um, I 
really loved half of it and sort of liked the other half. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, definitely... I, and, I, and I think you can probably guess which is which. That's, that's a split I, I definitely want to talk about. But I, I mean, I, I watched it after we had uh, come up with this pairing and after seeing Pete's Dragon, it, I was really thrilled by what a great pairing it, it ended up being just for a lot of the stuff that you talked about in your keynote, but also um, just specifically the how focused both films are on their visuals. And I, I like when we get to talk about visuals on this podcast because i don't think we we get to do it that much i mean we get to talk about whatever yeah, we want that's true that's true <laughs> <laughs> but like i said this is my first time watching it did any of you watch this as children oh, oh yeah, yeah i did yeah, yeah. yeah. okay yeah. so many many times so i'm i'm more interested in that than hearing about it a 32 year old watching it for the first time <laughs> <laughs> well i think i don't know if i saw it until it was on television i remember it being on television quite quite a bit and for a while, and really being it was a stable. It was a it was a family entertainment mm-hmm. stable for sure. Yeah, and then kind of not even really thinking about it that much for a long time. And then when when Criterion put it out on Blu-ray, I was really excited to revisit it, and it's even better than I remember it. And and it's the second time I watched it, like in the last year or so, because I wrote about it for a piece in the Daily Beast last summer. And I kind of had the same reaction as you the first time I watched it in the last year. But watching it this time, I really liked the way the two halves fit together. The second half is a little more conventional, but it's still, it feels very much like the same movie to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I saw this film many times as a kid. And I think I recall as as a kid, you know, being a, into sports, really enjoying the, the end of the movie. Because I think the racing scene at the end is one, really one of the more thrilling sports movie endings ever. Uh, you know, it just happens to be in a movie where you have this just standalone, you know, masterpiece of a first half to compare with it. You know, so as an adult, I guess maybe you'd weigh the two and, and come out a little bit more on the side of the first half. But uh, I, I love this film. I love Carol Ballard's you know vision as a director of family films. And it's just, I, I think there's something very pure about the way he pairs everything down and, and uh, the tone of his films and the simplicity of them and, you know, the, the emotion it's just it's all very elemental in a way that's just always appealed to me as a, as both a, a child with this this film and then as adult with movies like Fly Away Home. I mean, elemental is just a really good way to put it. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that I saw Black Stallion the first time in the theater and then probably again when it came to uh, home video and then just not for a really long time. But the second, I forget which of the two of you suggested it, but I mean, it was like a penny dropping home just in terms of what Pete's Dragon is doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And just how, how perfect it was. An instant, it was an instant yes on the Black Stallion. Yeah. Sure. And then just the chance to revisit because I, I remember it so warmly. I mean, much like Genevieve, I love the first half and I like the, first, the second half okay. But I mean, I just remember like watching it the first time. And this was the era where... Disney was putting out films like The Apple Dumpling Gang and yeah. the, the original Pete's Dragon. I was say, or Pete's Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which were just very squawky and shrill and performative. And, you know, the kids' performances in particular were very, look at me, I am saying words. And this film, <laughs> I mean, this film feels like a documentary, you know? It, it feels like Ballard just kind of like landed on this island with this kid and his horse and watched them. It's so watching it as an adult you can feel the effort that must have gone into it reading up on it you can certainly see the effort that must have gone into it but it feels so effortless it feels so natural and primal the the performances that he gets out of both the kid and the large series of horses that portray the black air are like are just really 
really organic. That's that's certainly true of the sequences on the island. But before we get too far away from it, I, I want to talk about the shipwreck sequence, which mm. I think is probably one of the most harrowing yeah. uh, shipwrecks I've, I've ever seen on film. And I, I was kind of in awe of that because it's, it's not the image I had of this film going into it, which is because I'd seen images, I'd seen clips before of that stuff we're talking about on the island, that very kind of beautiful, peaceful organic i guess vibe what what struck me so much about that shipwreck sequence is how you felt the chaos but you could also follow every beat of what was happening yeah and just i mean the scene where his father says goodbye and and Mm -hmm. realizes he's never going to see him again he's got a guy cutting the life jacket off of him he really (laughs) the sense of of danger could not be any more intense it's uh, that that sequence where the guy grabs him the black's owner grabs him and starts just methodically cutting him out of the life jacket is so chilling because you've got a natural disaster going on with just in terms of like the water sheeting down and the storm and there's fire in the background and then that's compounded by all of the people who keep bashing into him knocking down mm-hmm. and in the middle of all this you have this just really directed petty bit of of selfish malevolent evil it's just so many things all on top of each other and you know as you say it's it's very clearly choreographed but it's also just what, what an overwhelming situation to be a small who child wouldn't and cut, then, who wouldn't cut the jacket off and then, of and then add a I wild horse to the equation because <laughs> right. it wasn't scary enough. Oh, really fantastic sound design in that scene mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And it's fascinating like you can see how small that set is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the camera barely moves out of a, a fairly small area and a, a fairly directed angle on all of the chaos. Uh, you can see like where the, the water effect, you know, where they're dumping yeah. the water to make the splashes and it just still, it feels reckless. Like the people slamming into Alec don't feel like they're protected protecting him as a child actor like he he really does feel slammed around in that situation and there's so many situations in this movie where if you read up on it like oh the the horse was fine and there was no danger but i mean this film just looks like they Mm -hmm. were endangering both the kid and the horse over and over (laughs) and over it's like how did they do that the movie Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i also credit and this is true of pete's dragon and it's true of flyway home of starting a movie with a parent dying <laughs> and that that's a bold choice i mean that, and that sets a tone and, and gets us to a pretty vulnerable place emotionally right along with this kid and um it's not i guess it's common in disney animated films but i don't know if it's all that common in live action films to have a parent die, especially in that so striking and powerful away i mean they really he's lingering quite a bit on the sequence the sequence is pretty drawn out the shipwreck if you remember fly away home i mean the the entire opening credit sequence is pretty much a car flipping over and you know his his mother dying i mean it's it's all done not super explicit but it is pretty heartbreaking to watch and pete's dragon has that you know again slows things down it really lingers on this traumatic event and I, i appreciate the courage to do that well, there's also the fact that they, they take the time to establish the relationship between Alec and his dad. Yeah. They take the time to make him not only a real character that you're going to be sad to lose, but someone with like a meaningful relationship to his son. You know, Disney has a lot of dead parents in the background, but they're usually, you know, Bambi's mom and uh, Simba's dad aside, they're usually just kind of backgrounded. You know, mm-hmm. Dumbo's dad's not around, but we're not going to question why that is. It happened a long time ago and who's no, who knows where. This is, I mean, this becomes very personal. You you take the time to establish that Alex's dad likes him and makes him feel yeah. special and important and knows what he's interested in and takes time for him. And then you take him away. In contrast to his mom, who we meet in the oh second half, who it's kind of an interesting reversal of your expected parental types there because she just seemed really... <laughs> 
<laughs> like, okay, do whatever you want. Go play with your horse. I, like, she's, she's like very unengaged or unconcerned mother. I, I thought. It always strikes me how, how there's not a whole effort to track Alec down when he disappears for a day or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, he's already disappeared no, for she, months. They have the scene, though. The, the two, two things. One, <laughs> one they have, I mean, they have a scene where, where she's talking to her, her kid about riding in the race and about him needing to ride in the race. So I thought that was a beautiful scene. And then one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he's sleeping outside with the horse and she thanks the horse for saving her yeah. son. It's like yeah, the most beautiful nice. thing you've ever seen. I, I just, I love it. I, you know, so I, I don't, uh, maybe these, that, are, these are two really good parents. Is maybe maybe that character is just a little underserved. Like I, I, I'm certainly not insinuating that she was a bad mom, but, um, insinuated. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Keith is right. Like her, her kid runs off down, literally down the middle of the street and she says, Alec, come back. I and then I, I doesn't go after him. I always think it's, it's, it's kind of poetic license. I think <laughs> so there's another yeah. thing too. I mean, and this gets into the nature of parenting and that period it's parenting in night in the 1940s is not like parenting in the, 21st century. No, you, you don't let your kids. I don't. Just I don't. Or, my my father, when he was he was a boy, they he says he, he can't believe he even survived his childhood. <laughs> uh, they were they were they were literally they were making bombs <laughs> and, and playing around electrical uh, wires. But so, were they racing horses? Were they, they were racing not, But bombs. it is it is a similar just kind of like let them let the kids go and uh, see what happens. But uh, I mean, obviously, if they're missing for that long, I just what I'm saying is like I think we're underrating Terry Gar as a mom. I think this is a, these are, this is a good <laughs> I, this is a good home he's coming I th- from. I think you're conflating like insulting Alex mom with insulting Terry Gar. I, know, I really love I love Terry. I love <laughs> we Terry we Gar. all love Terry Gar. Okay. This is but, a I, Terry but she Gar does have that moment. Society. That moment with the horse. That just that that was the heart in the throat moment in the movie for me. I was just reflecting just now how much not not you, Genevieve. You're too young, but but how much the rest of us grew up watching Terry Gar be mom on film in movie after movie in that period you know I really do feel like you can there's a lot here to read between the lines like I don't know about you guys but when I when I watch her in that performance and what she's given I draw in my mind this whole picture of a woman who possibly still loved her husband was but was possibly estranged from him Mm -hmm. like we don't know why he's traveling with Mm -hmm. the boy she manifests grief for her husband but it's not any kind of deep profound grief it's it's kind of a a sad well I wish wish you could have saved him too and then she lives in this like fancy kind of over decorated overstuffed house that feels like kind of the exact opposite of Hoyt Axton and his kind of ruffled gambling ways and then when this boy shows up on her doorstep he she doesn't quite seem to know what to do with him and it kind of seems to take her a while to decide that she wants to intervene and be like an active mom in his life I I feel like she was used to him being away with the husband and didn't quite have a relationship with him mm. and that we see every moment of her building a new relationship with him on screen. Interesting. I like that interpretation. Yeah. We talked a little about the style of the film and in the same interview with Scott Foundas that I mentioned before, Ballard likens his style to being a good fisherman, uh, someone who can sit there and watch the fish come up to them, take the bait and not take it, go away, sit there another hour, hope that maybe it will come back. Is this careful approach? Is, is, do you kind of sense that watching this film and I also found myself thinking what would someone like uh, your, your David Finchers or your Stanley Kubricks do <laughs> trying to make a film like this like this is a filmmaker who by the nature of the, the project he chooses has to work with elements he can't control I mean I don't I don't see him working here with elements he can't control I see him working with some really surprisingly well controlled elements 
um, again, kind of like reading up on the the history of the film, they used a lot of different horses mm-hmm. to be the black, and they each kind of had specialties. You know, there were the swimming horses and the uh, lying on the ground thrashing around horses and the running horses, <laughs> snake stomping horses, horses, the snake stomping <laughs> horses. So, I mean, that speaks. And they to were all painted black and to various <laughs> degrees, <laughs> including oh. some including some straight up white ones. Yeah, the swimming horses were white, <laughs> which oh I don't know. Uh, of course, the the ones that they had to full body paint black were the ones that had to be in the water. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that just kind of speaks to someone who's who is like taking a lot of control steps. At the same time, I try to imagine Stanley Kubrick doing that, like feeding hand feeding the horse on the beach scene, like 67 takes. <laughs> and I, I can't even imagine. I mean, who knows how many takes that that took, but it's it's such a magical – it's one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen on film. Absolutely. I love that scene. But but no matter what, no matter how well-trained the horse is, though, there is an element of, of unpredictability. I mean, oh, this sure. is a filmmaker who worked with horses and, and wolves. And kids. And, and, and kids and geese, you know, geese. And, and a cheetah. And um, pigs. Don't and, forget pigs. Right, and pigs. pigs. Uh, there, there's an exclamation point in that title, which is why we're seeing it like, pigs! <laughs> and we, we're excited about about this pigs, but um, by definition, he's giving up a certain amount of. I'm trying to re- avoid using the word control again, but nonetheless, control control what he's filming. Oh sure, I mean, I think the answer to your question is Kubrick wouldn't have made this movie, right? Or wouldn't have made a movie with these elements because it just wouldn't have fit with the way he worked. I mean, it also wouldn't have fit with the things that he's interested in. Sure. Ballard's career is so much about the interaction of of people and nature, and uh, like how wild animals behave and how that makes you feel. I mean, he basically had to be who he was to make these movies. Yeah, I mean, the Ballard style sounds a lot like the Malick style, right? I mean, you know, yeah. both of these both of these are men who are constantly in search of the transcendent, uh, specifically as it relates to the natural world. And if that means waiting until magic hour, they're going to do it. You know, and also I'm, people are in some ways okay with finding their film in the editing room as well. Yeah, because because I mean, this is a very structured work. I mean, you, you could certainly think of it in two very distinct parts you know and it, it it feels planned out very meticulously in some respects and then in others it really opens up to whatever magic is created by nature and you know and by uh Ballard's collaboration with Caleb Deschanel, who's an incredible photographer and gets some great images. And and, and mentioned the sound designer before, but the sound designer is Alan Splett, whose other uh, major collaboration is with uh, David Lynch uh, and Terrence Malick, too. The two films he made preceding this were uh, Days of Heaven and uh, Eraserhead. Oh, my, oh God. my gosh. Wow. Well, you don't get better than the sound in Eraserhead. Right. Also, just watching this in tandem with Pete's drag, I mean, this is something I knew, but it just really drove home the physicality of pre-CGI filmmaking mm. and the quality that that brings to it. Because, I mean, the dragon in Pete's Dragon is a wonder of, you know, CGI animation, whatever. Like, it's a great, I, I think it's a wonderfully realized character. But it's a character that can be manipulated and made to do what needs whatever needs to mm-hmm. be done. And that is not the case with this. Like even if you are doing multiple takes with different horses and you know, waiting for just the right moment, like there is still just a unpredictability to that that just adds an extra level of how did they do that? The movie, I mean, well, texture, I, I, like a certain exactly. texture to it. But, but I, I, like, I'm just thinking about that scene of Alec riding bareback through the water. Like, I mean, Kelly Reno grew up on a ranch. Like, he knew how to ride horses. Like, that is really going on there. And like, I, I, I 
was a little distracted, just like kind of thinking about the like what what safety precautions are, are in effect here. Are there any? Or you know, well, the water is there to catch yeah, his fall. Exactly. The water's there to catch his fall. I I couldn't help but think about the the physicality of riding a horse bareback in in like thin pajamas. Yeah, that yeah, looked yeah, painful. Yeah. But just watching these two films in tandem, it really kind of served to highlight what each approach brings to the table. So let's maybe loop back to that interview that Lowry gave with IndieWire about sort of the dividing between art house and, and mainstream kids movies. And I think it's fair up to a point, but The Black Stallion wasn't exactly an ordinary kids film then. It stood out and came out around the same time as a movie called Chomps, uh, <laughs> starring uh, Valerie Harper and a robot dog. You know, we're, kids were being pandered to then uh, as now. Why do you feel that there's a reluctance to bring sort of a touch of, of artful filmmaking to kids movies? Because artful filmmaking is so associated with some kind of like egg-headed, brainy elitism mm. in just like a really boring way. I mean, I, I think there's an assumption that, oh, well, you know, kids can't handle that. Kids need kids need something loud and dangling, like jerking up and down in front of their faces. They, they, they need Kevin to be, Spacey as a talking cat. <laughs> they need to be distracted at every moment. And, you know, they want everything go, go, go. And it's almost like the people that make these films don't remember being kids at all. Yeah, it's it's the assumption that movies or entertainment exist as child distraction devices mm -hmm. rather than actual art that a child can take in and appreciate. I mean, to my in my experience, I think kids are more adventurous, purers than adults. <laughs> you know, the thing about kids, in my experience as a dad, is that they they accept the premise that you give them uh, because they don't know enough about the world to reject it. Uh, when my daughter was little, her favorite movie was, was My Neighbor Totoro, uh, which may seem too slow and abstract for someone of a young age to buy, or certainly of an older age, even even harder. But I think that's precisely wrong. Kids have not fully formed their idea of what a movie is like mm. adults have. They may develop it later and resist films that don't conform to their more calcified ideas about what to expect. But something like The Black Stallion, if you see it at a certain age, or you know, or if you want to show your kids a black and white movie, for mm -hmm. example, or I mean, that's the time to do it when they're nice, when they're young and they're not, you know, weaned on loud, clutter-filled garbage. I think you also just can't overestimate the degree to which kids want to see kids on screen doing things that they would want to do. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, you look at films that are out right now like Morse from America or uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, you know, those are films, both films that adults can appreciate. But I feel like the ideal target for either of those movies would be a 13 year old because mm -hmm. th that's what you're seeing on screen. I mean, now from everything I've read, kids often like seeing kids that are just a couple years older than they are because it's aspirational. Mm -hmm. So maybe 11 year olds rather than 13 year olds. And maybe in this case, seven year old rather than a like what roughly nine year old. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I saw this as a little kid and I like I wanted to be this kid I wanted to be in this adventure I wanted to, to be part of this story mm -hmm. I never had that reaction to things like the cat from outer space or, or Pete's dragon or whatever because those stories didn't feel like something that could happen you know they didn't feel immersive all that being said kids do like crappy movies <laughs> you know let's, let's not get too romantic yeah, let's yeah. not get too romantic about this I, I mean I, I have to ask have any of your kids seen the black stallion i think i think my five-year-old's just a tad too young for, for this yeah. one but we went to see pete's dragon together she loved it yeah I'm, I'm anxious to show my eldest who's age she's gonna want a horse think carefully <laughs> she's not getting one to her <laughs> so she'll have to uh learn how to deal with loss but um yeah i i don't uh that's uh, also a good thing for children that is a good movies. thing to be, 
But no, I, I do intend to show Black Stallion to both of the kids. And they just watched Babe. They loved it. It's great. Well, you know, um, something else about showing this movie to kids is it's a gateway drug to the book series. There Which was... I was going to ask you about. Do you? I haven't read any of them. Oh, yeah. I was I was totally into them. There's this whole thing about like little girls and horses. Like certain little girls get super obsessed with horses. And I was never that kid. Like I didn't have I didn't have the giant collection of like the the Briars like collectible horses. Mm. Um, but I knew people that did. There's just like a certain type of little girl like seizes on the power and the majesty of the horse in uh, some way that always escaped me. But I was super into books and I was especially into books that uh, was like a long continuity having series that could unfold. And the Black Stallion books, I mean, there were a lot of them and they kind of sprawled outward into <laughs> the Black Stallion verse. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's a pity that Ballard, Coming soon to a theater Ballard did not, in fact, make the, uh, the Black Stallion cinematic universe. <laughs> you know, they were probably looking back on it, not like terrific books. And they got weird really fast. Possibly even the next book in the series after the Black Stallion, this evil Arab shows up and says that horse is mine and like takes him back to Far Araby. And uh, Alec goes there and like gets involved in intrigue. And it's it's all very not Ballardy. Yeah, they made that as a movie to Black Stallion Returns. Oh, and, did they? Uh, yeah, and I saw it as a kid and, and I remember thinking, this isn't so great. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not so great. And I think that's also a film that's somewhat notorious for animal abuse on the set, if I'm oh, not no. if I'm not mistaken. I, I could be mistaken. I did have to stop this movie during the scene where the blacks like rolling around on the island covered in, in rope and, and just check to see kind of what its history with animals was. Because mm-hmm. it was it was making me kind of uncomfortable. And uh apparently I mean by all claims no animals were harmed yeah. uh, in the making of this movie. And that was a trained horse that was really good with that particular that particular trick. It's the Marlon Brando of horses. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so it was fat and drunk and refused to learn its lines? It, it was the early Marlon Brando of horses. <laughs> Let's circle back to what we kind of started talking about, the two halves of this film. I found them much better integrated this time watching it than, than before, because I really do feel like there's so many nice rhymes between the first half and the second half, that there's that Terry Gar moment that, that mm-hmm. you mentioned. I, I love the editing choice to cut back to the scene on the beach at the moment of victory. I mean, it just kind of collapses the time between those two things until they become the one thing. To me, uh, the, the second half is, it, well, they're both unlikely, I guess. <laughs> you know, real life is kidding this horse. They're not getting off that island. But, <laughs> but this sort of very unlikely unknown racer who is obviously a child is allowed to race against the West Coast and the East Coast champions. This isn't happening either. But, Keith, but um, he's wearing a mask. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Are you aware that jockeys are small? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's, they're not that small. <laughs> they're, not, they're not that small. I mean, there's small. a whole scene where we establish that they're not that small. Yeah. And which, as a as a kid, I always found the second half kind of boring. Uh, but I love that scene where he walks in and, and gets on the scale. And the official says, uh, will the jockey please get on the scale? Mm-hmm. Like, just that image of him, you know, standing there with all of his dressage stuff, like, in his hands. And he still doesn't really rate on the scale. Like, tickled me a lot as a little kid. Yeah. And it's shot in its own way just as lyrically as, as the stuff on the beach, too. I, I mean, the draw horse coming out of the mist, you know. It just, it's it's so gorgeous. It's, this movie, both halves of it are so, so beautiful. Although, what is up with the extremely magical black man? Yeah, with the white horse. With the white horse, who <laughs> who is apparently like a horse whisperer, and then is just kind of there at yeah. the end. Yeah, like, brings his horse to the horse race to, to watch. <laughs> to watch. <laughs> and talks to his horse, who is wearing a Napoleon hat and is named Napoleon. He gets that nice speech, though, that kind of draws out some of the themes of the film, where it kind of warns Alec that the horse can't be tamed, and kind of realizes he's really not trying to 
to tame the horse ultimately. He's trying to live with the horse. Well, and at the end, like Mickey Rooney hugs him. I mean, he, he kind of brings him in in a very inclusive way. And it kind of feels like watching it now, like he was meant to be a, a possibly a slightly subversive element for 1979. You know, here's this black character who is like wise and present and involved and knows more than most of the adults involved and is like very actively included in the big victory at the end. I mean, it, it feels like it was meant to be a statement. It just it looks a little odd today. We should mention that that actor is Clarence Muse. This is his final role. But his history in film goes back to nineteen the 1920s, really one of the first sort of sort of name African-American actors. Prior to this, he'd just been in Car Wash. So he's definitely an accomplished figure. And it seems like a nice uh, uh, final role for him. While we're talking, I should talk about Mickey Rooney, who got an Oscar nomination for this and, and kind of circles back to his own history with being in National Velvet. And, and uh, I think he's terrific in this. Yes, he movie. really is. I, it, it, it's a surprising performance, I think, based on what we know or understand about Mickey Rooney. It's, it's not sticky in any no. way. Yeah, it's no. very dialed down. Very much so, and, and, and soulful and, and wounded. And yeah. I think that's a real that's a real character. And I mean, you think about Mickey Rooney as, as being sort of goofy or maybe even just being kind of a pro, who you know, an mm-hmm. entertainer. And there's something more layered about what he does here that I, I think is terrific. There's also, I mean, he's kind of a visual gag. Like when he's lurking in the dark and you can't see him <laughs> and he's threateningly claiming the horse over and over he's a spooky figure and then he steps out and not only is he mickey rooney but he's mickey rooney with shaving cream all over his face and it just it kind of like deflates the moment and like takes him back to being just this kind of human who like the boy can interact with almost on his own level yeah the second half does feel like a showcase for him in that performance which may be another kind of contributing factor to why it felt to me like it, the two halves didn't necessarily go together although Keith your keynote at the beginning in mentioning that final scene did kind of make it fit together a little better in my mind but I guess the sticking point to me <laughs> with the second half is that in order to like process this is a positive outcome or a happy ending I think you have to buy into the idea that being a racehorse is the best possible thing that a wild horse could end up being and i just don't necessarily believe that and like just because the black is fast doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to enjoy racing or all the things that come with i mean he's a wild stallion he should be galloping over the plains you know and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because i was like are you just finding a reason not to like this because you don't like horse racing but like if I was going to place logic on the black becoming a racehorse, it's like, okay, he can't live in the backyard. He needs to live on a farm somewhere where he can run. And that is Mickey Rooney's farm, you know, and he can gallop across the pasture there and whatever. He can be happy, but Mickey Rooney can't afford it or something. So they need to like win a cash prize and they'll race him for that. Like that at least I could buy is a reason to put him into racing, but it seems just like, well, he's fast, so we got to make him a racehorse. Well, but I, I just consider it maybe as a part of his integration into the civilized world. I mean, think of it like... He's a wild horse. Yeah, but why do th- we want to reintegrate yeah. into the civilized world? Yeah, like, I, I understand, what is good about I understand that? that that is the big theme of this, but I don't know that that is a theme that I want to see realized well i mean i just i think you can reckon you get uh, he gets at this perfect moment in that in the race where he's still wild he's still a horse he's still got this incredible bleeding profusely spirit from leg. and yeah he's got he's got he's got grit he's got all of these things but but he's also kind of a part of our world as well there's a reconciliation i suppose between you know the, the human world and the animal world they sort of come together in this very exciting way you know and i, and I just think horse races there are crude way as human 
human beings to to measure the magnificence of of a horse. You know, a horse that can do that is revered in a way that, that a horse. But why do be. we care as an audience? I mean, we've already we've already been privy to this incredibly intimate and beautiful mm-hmm. like rapprochement between the kid and the horse. We know it's a magnificent creature. Yeah. Why do we care that he's proved to be a magnificent creature to a bunch of people who just want to profit off of him and commodify him? I think it's more do a matter that, of, uh, I think it's more a matter of finding a way that the boy and, and the horse can live together and have an existence together. Right. More, and, it, more and, than, and it's really about redemption more than money too, right? In what, in what sense? I mean, for Mickey Rooney, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't, I never really thought it like, oh boy, now, now everyone's going to get rich off of this horse. Uh, that never really crossed my mind. Um, I mean, yeah, Mickey Rooney kind of does his like, I need this, I need this, but I don't feel like the film earns that enough. Like, I like his character, and you can certainly, you know, if you can make Terry Gar into a, a woman struggling to understand her son and come to terms with their their new relationship, you can certainly make Mickey Rooney some sort of like well realized man with a past that he's had to reject. I mean, he's kind of of like Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles, you know, being invited back into to the game that he loves, complete with his like hidden room full of trophies that he sighs over. But at the same time, like, again, it's not his story. It, it just it kind of feels like he comes out of nowhere and kind of attaches mm-hmm. himself to this. And the fact that the boy and the horse can be together in civilization, but only under this really regimented sort of way that requires gatekeepers and is like literally limited to like, here's your two miles. But how That's what re- how you get. regimented are we talking here? I mean, like, there's nothing conventional in any way, shape, or form about the way the horse gets into the race, about the way the horse runs the race, about the way the horse wins the race. I mean, it's almost like you, you do have this system that is uh, very orderly and then just, you're introducing this exciting chaos element into it. It's like the hippie crashing the party. It's <laughs> this, this, uh, this hippie horse. Plus, it's plus He does it's have just, very long hair. He's got really he long really does. He's got long hair. Kind of hair. tangled and unwatched, just, too. Yeah, right. Kind of and, smells, and, uh, and I just, and I, you know, I really just will just defend it flat out as just being a thrilling sequence. I just, I love his come from behind, uh, Victor. I think just is a sporting thing. It's kind of great to watch. But and that, uh, and that, that kind of amazing come from behind victory happens a lot in horse racing, right? Uh, that's <laughs> when you've got this, this amazing horse. The other thing I, I have to mention, if we're going to do the the first half, second half comparison, and again, I mean, you, know, you just can't beat the purity of the stuff on the island. I mean, that's as good as silly yeah. jets. So, so, so how are you going to even follow everything? going to be an anticlimax next to that but but, but I, it's half of the film then is an anticlimax but it's, it's, no but i mean I, i'm saying in comparison but the second half is quite good and and, and so i will say you know we've mentioned many of the things I, I really like about the second half but we haven't talked about uh, the black galloping through this you know american city of the of the 40s and, mm-hmm. and beyond and through industry and through the countryside and it's just like this incredible image of the of the country at that time it's just it, it's awesome Leaking it's almost like it's almost like misplaced uh, cars me of like, from the 1950s it just reminded me of like it was like it was like watching days of heaven or something mm-hmm. or like some, some incredible period piece as seen through this horse who's in a very you know different place than he's used to being in a in a civilized world with it, fruit carts and yeah it is a miniature kind of uh version of the short film you made Perils of Priscilla except for the horse instead of the the cat I, I have to yeah it's all it. it's actually all on the blu-ray I can't sing the praise of this blu-ray enough because it has all his short films really good interviews uh with him but yeah very much uh, uh worth uh, worth taking a look at yeah I mean I can't fault the the beauty of the second half I mean that that image of Clarence Muse and and Napoleon the horse coming like slowly emerging mm-hmm. from the mist I mean like that is some like Terry Gilliam level beauty going on right there it's not that it's not excitingly shot or or well paced or or well executed or emotional or emotive. I just keep 
wondering, like, well, what is it exactly that I'm supposed to be feeling here compared with the purity and the elegance of the first half of the film? Yeah, like the, the romance of horse racing just can't hold a candle to the romance of what is happening on that island. And I totally buy your guys' explanation. And especially, Keith, I like what you just said about finding a way for the two of them to continue to be together you know, and, and this being that way. But it can't feel like anything but a letdown after seeing their life on that island. And logically, obviously, that isn't a life that they could sustain. But their life in civilization just seems like a pale reflection, I guess. Here's no, the thing. A of, I don't, there's a lot of seaweed on, on that island. Yeah. <laughs> they might have made a go of it. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, what I remember from the books is a sense. Eat the horse. <laughs> That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. (laughs) Good night, everybody. What I remember from the books, and this is a very vague and distant memory, so people who are reading them right now uh, can feel free to yell at me and, and correct me. I remember there being a lot more about the black wanting to race, about it being very clear that the black enjoyed competition and that only the competition of the race like really spurs it. it. It's like it's a visceral thrill for the horse that the horse doesn't get in any other way. And what's missing for me from the second half is a sense of the horse's needs in all this. I mean, it's clear what Mickey Rooney is getting out of it. It's clear what the famous race announcer with the entourage of cars <laughs> is getting out of it. It's even fairly clear what Alec is getting out of it. What I don't get is any sort of sense of like why this is good for the horse. I'm going to say point taken. Yeah, at the same time, I'm kind of praise Ballard for not attempting to portray what the horse is getting out of the <laughs> Because that might have been a little, a little too hard. I was, just, I was just saying, what this movie needed was a talking horse. <laughs> All right. So that should probably wind down our discussion of uh, the Black Stallion for, for, for right now. You probably should have winded it down when we started talking about eating the horse. <laughs> but uh, we'll be back in just a moment with feedback. We were kind of surprised not to get much feedback on our episode pairing The Dirty Dozen with Suicide Squad. Maybe everyone was too in awe of Suicide Squad's greatness? <laughs> I, I, I certainly I certainly was. <laughs> we did get this bit of theorizing, however, from Jacob in Midland, Texas. Jacob writes that he has always been puzzled by the Dirty Dozen character of Sergeant Boren, played in the film by Richard Yeckel. He's not one of the dozen, nor is he their leader. The most recent viewing cracked it open for him. Jacob writes... I realized he's there to represent the audience and how we view the prisoners throughout the movie. At the beginning, like the viewer, he's skeptical of the whole situation. He has no respect for them and seriously doubts their mission will have any sort of success. His orders are full of sarcasm and snark. As the story progresses, he starts to joke with them and care about them. In the last supper scene, we see him with a big smile on his face, taking a picture of the whole group to remember the time together. And during the final mission, for a few of the different deaths of the main cast... The film cuts to show his surprised or horrified reaction, mirroring many of the faces in the audience. Jacob goes on to note that Suicide Squad, quote, sort of combines Bo Ren and Reisman in a single character with Rick Flagg. If only Richard Yackel were around to play Rick Flagg. I think Scott, Scott at least would have found that more satisfying. The problem is that Rick Flagg has so much of a a story role. There are so many things he's supposed to be trying to do there that he doesn't really have the opportunity to just kind of like sit back and look at the Suicide Squad for us and, and tell us how to appreciate them. He's got like three different story functions at the same time. He's got to figure out a comprehensive way to bore the audience to death <laughs> watching him. <laughs> Well, you know, that just is what makes him a supervillain, the borer. 
I do like that reading of Bowen, though. I'd have to go back and watch the film to kind of track that progression Jacob is talking about, but it definitely scans with my my memory of the film. Yeah, it does make me want to go back and watch the death scene specifically mm-hmm. for his reaction shots, because I, I mean he does come across as kind of an audience avatar, like the I mean he's he's kind of dutifully going along with the whole business, even though he's uh, he's very dubious about it, but he's foregrounded an awful lot more than yeah. you would expect somebody of that character. Exactly, to be. especially with their being so many people in this cast to begin with it's like why is there this 13th person here like there there has to be a reason for it so audience surrogate makes sense yeah i like this theory i'll buy it so even if the dirty dozen and suicide squad didn't stir up a lot of action we'll always have ghostbusters to talk about (laughs) oh yes we will johnny s wrote in to expand on a point we made explaining how ghostbusters theme of gentrification bleeds beyond the borders of the film itself he writes Not only does New Busters nicely capture contemporary New York's ambivalence about its own past, but it pointedly refers to the city as a very different place than it used to be. I'm thinking specifically about that baffling time warp sequence at the end. More importantly, the movie is the kind of gentrified object, too. All sanitized, nostalgic posturing without a hint of danger. That's not to say that the original isn't worth cleaning up. It's less funny or scary than it is big. But the interesting part is that the movie underwent its own version of sanitization, too. What started as a product of SNL's anarchic sensibility veered off course and Belushi died and Murphy declined. This kind of cultural gentrification, making the present safer at the expense of the past, is slowly becoming the norm. You see the same thing in comic book movies, and as much as I love Star Trek Beyond, that shows rougher edges were part of its charm. Like real-life gentrification, it may be progress, but I wouldn't call it progressive, and in the case of a female-led blockbuster, that's a shame. So the point here being that films like Ghostbusters and, and Star Trek Beyond, that they lose some of the shagginess of the originals. And that Ghostbusters itself isn't the shaggy anarchic film it might have been if Belushi had stuck around and Eddie Murphy had been in it. It's an interesting argument. What do you guys think? I really don't want to see the version of original Ghostbusters with Belushi and Murphy at this point. You know, do we? I think we established at, uh, at great length our feelings, our positive feelings and negative feelings for that film. But it, I mean, it is a document of its time in a really interesting way. And I just have to think that the anarchic uh, Belushi version would have been, you know, shaggier and even more ego focused in a way that would have taken away from the ensemble, which is what make that, makes that film so great. Mm-hmm. But, but in general, do you feel that the remakes kind of shave off the rough edges and, and, and the reboots and, and whatnot? Star Trek in particular? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I, I think it's very true of, uh, of Ghostbusters, too. I mean, I think that there is actually a sense of weirdness and uncanniness and danger in the original Ghostbusters that's just completely lacking in the remake. I was kind of joking after seeing Star Trek Beyond that it was the sort of movie that would take the old Star Trek, you know, give it like a wedgie or something. It's, just, it's like it's not as nerdy as the. It's much slicker and piece of polish, and it feels in certain ways not like a Star Trek movie at all. But I, I saw it a second time. I saw it a second time yeah. and, and really softened to it quite a, a bit, and saw a lot of soul in the the relationship between the the, the characters and, and their camaraderie and teamwork that really kind of uh, impressed me this time out. So. Yeah, I, I like that movie. And, and actually, I think what you said of that could probably be said of every Star Trek movie except for the first one, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which really does feel like an episode of the show. Well, you're, you're bullying Star Trek Four. No, I think Star Trek Four though is definitely more you know movie first. Okay, you know, oh, satisfying the needs of a, of a big summer science fiction movie. Is it movie first though? I mean, to me, it feels like era first. It feels sure. like a, just such a weird experiment in. Eh, let's just uh, get all of these characters that you like together now like in the 80s and like let them hang out because yeah. whatever man i don't know i, I like that movie 
<laughs> I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm saying, like, first of all, I don't think it has it has the rough edges, and second of all, I I do think that it would get dragged behind the school and uh, and given a swirly. Just, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a weird it's a weird small. I'm glad you're I'm glad you're hooking, you're you're connecting with this metaphor of my. Yeah, I'm not even really good. sure what it means. I just I just <laughs> like saying swirly. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll plunge deep into a land where dragons dwell, or at least one especially kind-hearted dragon who sees a bit of himself in a little lost boy he decides to protect. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, let's kick back and challenge some seaweed while we wait to be rescued. <laughs>